Hello and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. Everyone knows that we need strong passwords, but all too many of us still use weak ones, both for work and online. Our guest this week is Stephen Fennell, a senior member of the IEEE and Professor of Cybersecurity at the University of Nottingham. For the last 15 years, he's been tracking the password policies of leading web and e-commerce sites. He's just released the latest version of this study, and he found that some sites will still allow passwords as short as six characters, and even really simple to guess words. This has implications, he says, not just for security online, but also for the way we use passwords in business. What I've been doing since actually 2007 is looking at the password practices in terms of the guidance that's provided to us as users selecting our passwords and the enforcement of password rules on a series of leading websites. So I've taken popular sites at whatever point in time um, I was doing the study. So the first one was back in 2007. I've done it every three to four years since then. And so the fifth run of it, I've published this year. And so basically the, the, the underlying method each time is to look at a couple of aspects. Firstly, what guidance are users presented with when they first sign up to these services? So all of them are services that are asking people to create password protected accounts as part of their use of, of the website concerned. And then regardless of whether guidance is provided or not, to then look at what the websites actually accept in terms of passwords that, that users might choose. So trying basically various bad practice examples of passwords and seeing if they're permitted to be chosen. So this time around, actually looking at it, none of the sites that were, were tested, the 10 sites um, under investigation, actually provided tangible upfront guidance to users before asking them to select their password. So they weren't told anything about what sort of characteristics would make a good password, for instance. And then there were various instances of things that you might expect to be filtered out and blocked as password choices actually being allowed to be chosen. So these sites, these are publicly accessible websites, e-commerce, that type of thing. The approach I took here was to look at something called the Alexa Global Top 500, which is um, basically the top 500 most popular sites at any given point in time. And to take the 10 top sites from there that, that met two criteria. One, that they were actually in English so that I could read them, and also that they were using a unique password login approach. So for example, Google was one of the sites um, in each of the studies actually. Um, in the 2022 uh, version that I was looking at, YouTube would have been another popular site in the list, but I, I didn't choose that one to look at as well as Google because YouTube is a Google service, uses the same Google login. So it would have been basically just duplicating the same result. So what did you discover? Looking at it from the perspective of the, the sites providing a level of guidance to users. So if we look at, for example, um, the, the different points at which guidance could be provided when you're going to choose your password, you could be given some sort of information prior to making an attempt to choose a password. So for example, a little prompt on the screen that tells you what the minimum length acceptable is or something of that nature. You could be offered more tangible guidance, for example, a link to more comprehensive information on good practice for, for selecting and managing passwords. 
You could be offered feedback during your attempt to type something. So, for example, a password meter interactively rating what you were typing. And you could be offered feedback once you've pressed the return key, for example, or the OK button and tried to commit your password and then get told whether it's accepted or not. So basically, five out of the 10 sites that I looked at in the 2022 study provided some information prior to the user trying to select their password. Um, so this often wasn't very extensive information. So for example, something saying password must be at least six characters um, or another prompt that I saw on another site, use eight characters or more with a mix of letters, numbers, and symbols. That might be the extent of the, the guidance that those five sites were providing. Um, none of the sites provided any link to more tangible guidance. So if you wanted to find out more about the, the, the full set of rules or good practice for selecting passwords, you weren't going to find it as a link or anything on the screen there as part of the, the sign-up process for those sites. Four of the sites, maybe five, depending on how we count it, offered some sort of feedback during the password attempt. These were often different sites to the ones that were providing the, the tips before selecting. So for example, um, one of them, um, Reddit, in actual fact, had a password meter. So you were getting some sort of rating of weak, medium, strong, for example. Um, three of the sites, Twitter, Wikipedia, and Yahoo, were presenting some sort of message as you were typing passwords in. So for example, telling you if the password was considered too weak or too short, et cetera. And one of the sites, Instagram implicitly provided some feedback during your attempt because the next button to allow you to, to try and commit the password was grayed out until you typed at least six characters, i.e. the minimum number that it was willing to accept. And then the majority of the sites, seven out of 10 of them, offered post-attempt feedback. So you're only getting told anything about what you want, might want to consider with your password after you tried something and it wasn't accepted. And so you're getting information such as um, to, well, read the guidance from Facebook, for example. It would tell you if you put in something that wasn't considered sufficiently strong, please choose a more secure password. It should be longer than six characters, unique to you and difficult for others to guess. Well, that information could you know, arguably have been presented on the screen underneath the password box before you type anything into it, but you're only getting it after you've gone through the process of making what was apparently considered to be a weak choice and then being sent back to the drawing board to start again. Um, other sites perhaps gave some feedback which wasn't necessarily very informative, so at least Facebook is at that point telling you the minimum length and giving you some tips about being unique to you, difficult for others to guess. Um, in the case of LinkedIn, for example, the message you would get is, please enter a more secure password. If you've already entered something that wasn't secure, perhaps it's because you don't know what secure is or what the site is actually looking for. And similarly, Reddit in that context, even it has the password meter, so it's already giving you some feedback to say it's not a good choice. But if you try and commit that password anyway, it will tell you, that password is unacceptable, but won't tell you why and won't tell you, for example, what you ought to be aiming for to make it better. So there's some level of feedback, but it's arguably not very useful to the user who is presumably trying to make a good choice and not to, to stall themselves in the process of, of going through lots of, of bad decisions and perhaps feeling frustrated as they're told they're not doing it right, but not being told how perhaps they should do it right. What are the consequences other than the user being frustrated? So I think, well, one of the consequences is they, they feel perhaps unsupported here. And it, it's 
arguably symptomatic of what we see with security in a lot of other contexts as well, that people are assumed to know what they're doing. They're assumed that you know, being told to choose a strong password a more secure password is something meaningful to them. And if you're a user who actually doesn't understand what you should be doing better, then the potential there is to make you feel, well, not only frustrated, but also you know, perhaps confused, lost, and unable to cope with what you're being asked to do. And in this particular case, I mean, it's okay, passwords are here, there, and everywhere. And arguably, there's something that people are meant to be familiar with. But quite clearly, from what we see in the myriad different surveys that come out and the, the reports of password breaches that show what the weak passwords were, or the, the, the common passwords, that, that people are choosing passwords that are predictable, that would be considered to be weak. And they are doing so perhaps because they're being allowed to do so fundamentally, but also perhaps because they don't know any better or it's not been properly explained to them why a better choice or a stronger choice would be more appropriate. And so we're in the situation of allowing bad practice to perpetuate and not doing the little nudges that would be useful to actually support people in understanding and perhaps then doing better. In your view, though, are the requirements that these big sites are asking for actually stringent enough? No, and that's the next thing, to be perfectly honest. I mean, one, one aspect is what guidance, if any, are users given? And the next level is, well, OK, regardless of whether people are given guidance up front or little tips in response to bad choices, etc., what do the sites then actually allow? And that that reveals its own interesting sort of set of results, so to speak. And there are a number of tests that I applied to each of the sites to see the sort of things that they would or wouldn't permit. And so one of the you know, fundamentals is, well, what's the minimum length that a site will accept as a password? And Okay, so uh, one one good finding, shall we say, compared to when I first did this study back in 2007, is that all of the sites now had some sort of minimum length. Um, back in 2007, a couple of the sites would have accepted a one-character password and uh, been quite happy with that. Um, now, a password length of six, which really isn't adequate in this day and age in terms of password cracking tools, etc. Uh, a minimum length of six is what four of the sites accept. And in the other cases, it, it's, well, five of them, it's a minimum of eight. And in the case of Yahoo, it varies depending on the complexity of the password you choose, i.e. whether you've got multiple character types as to whether it will allow a seven character password if it's mixed character types or nine characters as a minimum if it's all the same type of character. But even there, if you look around at, at guidance in other contexts, in organizations, for example, you know, we're getting told more typically that passwords of 12 to 14 characters are the better baseline to be using. And if we look at password generation tools, et cetera, then they're going even beyond that. And so you know, the minimum lengths that are being accepted here, you can understand why in some of the cases that you know, for, for people trying to commit things to memory and dealing with a wide population of users, perhaps eight characters is something that people are believed to be able to cope with, but it's not providing particularly strong security at the front door um, in this day and age. If you're looking at the password strength requirements, but also the guidance, and I think this is very key here, it's not saying to people, you must put in a six character password. It's saying to them, your password should be at least six characters. The problem is that there's no incentive for the end user to pick a stronger password than the minimum. So is that something you feel could be communicated better or, or perhaps 
we talked about providing links to external sites and so on, that they're not doing that. Is that something where a degree of user education is required? Or actually, should they just bite the bullet and say, actually, you know, we need a 12 character password with non-alphanumeric characters in there, because that's the only way we can safeguard our sites and ultimately our, our users' data? Yeah, I think it's a combination of both. I mean, certainly you do want to, or we ought to be wanting to educate users in order to make them understand why these requirements are being put in place. And as you as you say, that the prompts and things where they're provided to tell people it's at least six characters, and many people will then think, okay, six characters is enough. And we see that in terms of the lists of common passwords that have been published over the last decade or so by Splash Data and now NordPass, that the topmost choice, so to speak, in the, the common password list is one, two, three, four, five, six. Um, it satisfies the uh, minimum length of six characters, but it's not a particularly um, difficult one to, to guess, so to speak. Um, and yeah, I think providing a means for people to be educated about it is ought to be um, something on our minds. And I think yeah, the, the, possibly the challenge for some of these sites is that they're assuming that people have been educated somewhere else, so it's not their role to be providing that education because somebody else ought to be doing it. Um, you know, not, not clear on who that somebody else ought to be. My view is these are leading sites that are in a very good position to encourage and promote and set a standard for good practice, and they're, they're missing an opportunity to do so. Um, as to whether we'd suddenly want to jump to 12-character passwords and, and get them to bite the bullet, as you say, well, I think the challenge there is that uh, yeah, that is equally likely to frustrate the existing user community, then find themselves having to change their passwords. It might be easier with, with some of the new people signing up. But again, if it's accompanied with appropriate contextualization to tell people why this is important and the level of protection that it will give to their account as a consequence, then there is perhaps a, a good argument for it. Have the site operators become more diligent around rejecting certain types of password that don't meet criteria or just too simple to guess. So one, two, three, four, five, six, password, those type of ones that come up time and time again. So to a degree, yes, but it's it's by far from consistent and by far from perfect. I can tell you a few more then of the, of the tests that I was applying in each of the cases here. So one of the things that I was looking at, if I, if I just go through the, the list that I've got here, I was checking to see if the site prevented the user from using their surname. For example, now in many of the cases, you know, the sites as part of sign up are asking you for your your name, your forename, and your surname, etc. We know um, from sort of anecdotal experience and past evidence that people do use their surname as, as their password. And many of the sites, seven out of 10 of them, in fact, don't prevent the surname from being used. In some cases, it's because they're not asking for that information as part of the sign up, so they can't explicitly test for it. But three of the sites, do ask for it, and then do include that in the filtering to make sure that it's not being reused. And so you know, the, the point I would make there is if three of them can do it, why can't 10 of them do it in this, in this context? Um, do they prevent users from using their user ID as their password? Again, something we know that people have a tendency to do if given the opportunity, because it's easy to remember. So if if the site is asking people to sign in with their email address, I use their email name to, to proxy for the user ID. If they were selecting a user ID in and of itself, I was checking whether that was accepted. And um, well, only, th only three, only three of the sites um, didn't prevent this. The majority of them did. So seven out of the 10 were blocking this particular thing. But again, that's still three that don't. Um, 
do they prevent the word password? Um, you know, so you, we mentioned that one, two, three, four, five, six is a very common password. Um, and I actually tested that as well amongst what I, what I term dictionary words and common words. But I, I specifically use the word password as well. And nine out of 10 sites now prevent the word password from being used out of the ones that I sampled. There's still one that, that merrily allowed it through. Um, and that was Amazon in this particular case. Um, do they prevent the far more imaginative and inventive password one exclamation mark with a capital P at the beginning of it. So now satisfying if, if the site is enforcing composition rules and looking for uppercase, lowercase, numeric and special characters, password one is your, your instant uh, solution to that problem. And actually only two sites prevent that one from being used. So eight out of 10 um, were quite happy with password one, which I would you know, begin to argue is almost as predictable as password if, if people are trying to get around filtering rules. Um, I then was looking at dictionary words, as I say, or common strings. And I used a few different types here. I used, well, actually, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, QWERTY, let me in, football, I love you, all is one thing, monkey. Um, all of those words were, were popular passwords from recent iterations of either the NordPass or the Splash Data common password lists. And then I use a few longer ones. I use diamonds and dictionary, all in lowercase, dictionary being literally a dictionary word, obviously. Um, and then diamonds and dictionary with a leading uppercase character, and then dictionary with a, a leading uppercase character and a one at the end. So the most um, sort of complicated common choice that I was using just to see if if adding some composition variations with uppercase and, and a numeric would make any difference. And it's quite a mixed picture in terms of whether sites were successfully blocking these or, or letting them through. So for example, just at the extremes, Amazon filtered none of them. It allowed all of those to be used as password choices if you wish to, whereas Yahoo prevented all of them. Um, and then all of the other sites that I looked at, and I, I realize I've not named all of the sites in one go. So the, the, the 10 sites in this run of the, the study were Amazon, Facebook, Google, Instagram, LinkedIn, Microsoft Live, Reddit, Twitter, Wikipedia, and Yahoo. So all of them have a, an option for users to, or a necessity in most cases, for users to have a password-based account to use them, Wikipedia being the exception there, but it still has um, a sign-up option. Um, and I say... Facebook um, blocked almost all of it. So dictionary one with a, a leading uppercase D and a one at the end was the one that it, uh, that it allowed through. Um, and similarly for Instagram, Google allowed dictionary with an uppercase D as well without the one on the end. And it was yeah, the other sites um, were a little bit more permissive with, with various of the other things that they allowed. And in some of the cases, I think the reason was also because, for example, QWERTY, um, if you've got a site that's or, or um, what else was there? That Monkey, for example, both of those are six character passwords. If you've got a site that's insisting on a minimum length of eight, they're going to be blocked by the length restriction, not by the any need to filter the dictionary words. So, you know, so some, some sites were ending up blocking things indirectly, whether or not they were using a filter list for, for common words. So that one was, was something that was, was still quite variable amongst the sites. But we can see, for example, from the fact that Yahoo manages to block all of them, that it is feasible to do it. It's just many of the others weren't. Um, the other thing I looked at was whether sites are 
enforcing composition rules. So you mentioned there about having um, letters, numbers, special symbols, uppercase, lowercase letters, etc. Now, these days, in terms of the guidance that we get from, let's say, the National Cyber Security Center and also NIST with their digital identity guidance, and NIST being the US National Institute of Standards and Technology, um, their digital identity guidelines back in, what was it, 2017, um, they actually now advise against enforcing composition, enforcing complexity in the password in that way. And, and both NCSC and NIST advocate that the length of the password should take precedence. So having something longer, but using less complex characters is perhaps a better basis for users to be able to remember the string. And so using a passphrase, for example, or indeed as uh, NCSC recommends, merging together three random words and using those as your password. Um, and so... I was looking to see whether sites were now enforcing composition, and only one of them now, it's quite different from early years, only Microsoft Live was, was requiring users to have multiple character types in their passwords. I mentioned earlier that Yahoo lets you use shorter passwords if you use more complex um, strings, but it doesn't require you to have that complexity. If you're using just one character type, you just need a longer password, which sort of goes along with the guidance. So those were the, I say, various of the things I was testing what was enforced and what was allowed. And it, I say it gives a fairly mixed picture between both the sites themselves, what they do and don't enforce, and you know, particular restrictions like um, you know, whether they prevent password, whether they prevent, prevent password one exclamation mark. That, yeah, there's, there's no consistent everybody does it well um, in terms of those responses. So we're seeing some changes and some of those changes reflect different thinking about how passwords operate. So as you're referencing there, um, NCSC and NIST guidelines saying, well, actually, the memorability of the password is probably more important than having something which is complex and shorter, but the user is more likely to write down and reuse. So that's where they're driving at from. In terms of how they develop this technology, are we seeing, we are seeing more uh, requirements for two-factor authentication, for example. So are we likely to see another iteration, another jump forward where actually more sites will make two-factor authentication obligatory? Yeah, so this, this again, is sort of interesting in the sense it's one thing that certainly has changed over the, the 15 years and the five iterations of the study is now almost all of the sites have an option for, well, they vary in what they call it, two-step, two-factor authentication to be applied to the user's account there is little obligation to use it and in many of the cases it wouldn't be obvious to the user that this was available unless they actually went into the uh, a few levels deep into the the account settings to see that there is actually something there they can switch on there could certainly be more in terms of promoting it to users say hey you know you use two-factor authentication in other contexts we're sure you can apply it to this account as well i think in some cases we've seen is it i think if i remember rightly google for example turning on two-factor authentication for accounts that haven't been used for a while and to to add additional protection to them the next time they come to get used but it's certainly not a case that we're seeing two-factor authentication as a requirement across the board yet no, and again, I, I guess 
I'm not trying to put words in the mouths of these companies, but I guess some of that is trying to avoid creating barriers. And they say they're trying to do e-commerce and similar. They want convenience and two-factor authentication can be actually quite inconvenient, depending on how it's set up. Is your expectation that more sites will give that option? And if they are doing that option, perhaps they should do a bit more to publicize it. It is a powerful tool. Yeah, certainly. I mean, a couple of things there. I think you're absolutely right that the reason is not being made a requirement is because it's then a disincentive for a people to sign up and be a complication when people then want to to use the services um if if at least there's a two-factor authentication requirement every time somebody logs in and i think that also to be to be frank is why we're seeing less upfront guidance being provided to users and less enforcement because again at this stage what they're looking for people to do is to create an account to sign up to become a user of that service and the more the more you put in their way in terms of well your password needs to meet these requirements etc and putting that distracting information in front of users perhaps that will be a disincentive for them to sign up but certainly yes my going back to the other part of it i would hope that there would be um, more opportunities for people to have the option for two-factor authentication and more pushing, promoting reminders for people who haven't then enabled it from the service providers to sort of bring it to their attention that there is this feature and it's easy to enable, so to speak. Um, I suppose the other factor is that you know, having two-factor authentication then creates that requirement for somebody, for example, to have their phone with them to generate or receive the, the one-time codes, et cetera. So there is that additional complexity to the process of logging in um, compared to something that you can, well, type in quickly or even have committed to your browser or your password manager to, to populate for you. What, though, can we learn from all this in terms of how we operate passwords at the enterprise level? And there are, of course, plenty of sites that people use on a regular basis that are not in that list that you have. They're, they're not as big. But I still come across sites, for example, that actually don't allow a stronger password than so many characters, which strikes me in this day and age is entirely wrong, or it will reject certain non alphanumeric characters and not allow that complex password to be used. This is part of the, the premise of the study, actually. That the, what these sites are doing, being very prominent, well-known leading sites in the field, they are likely to be seen as the yardstick that well, other websites and also organizational um, services would use to judge, well, what ought we to be doing? So you, know, you could have the situation that they say, yes, if this is acceptable to, to these leading players, then it's perfectly sufficient for us. Or you know, I think perhaps less likely, but um, they could use that as, okay, this is an established baseline. Let's immediately push beyond it and, and realize that we might be able to get more out of our users than that. I think, I mean, you mentioned about the, the, the odd restrictions that we find, like, for example, upper limits on password length, which... You know, I've just found in the past, I'm sure you've, you've encountered the same, that when you do things like sort of browser-generated passwords and all these other sort of automations and conveniences that have been introduced to try and make it easier for us to use passwords, you then come across some websites that, yes, they won't allow a browser-generated password or password manager-generated password because it's too long or it doesn't include the right type of characters or it includes characters that the site doesn't permit. And so I suppose a lesson for organizations where they're more in control perhaps of what they're doing is to think about the logic of some of the, the rules and restrictions that they do or don't enforce. And also to ensure that that is accompanied by some means 
of helping users understand what they ought to be doing and why they ought to be doing it. So what does good look like and why is that good? So why aren't we wanting people to choose the word password? It might seem obvious to us that, well, because it's so predictable and many other people use it, et cetera, but average users may not realize this unless they're told and having it explained to them is helpful, particularly password length. So why is a, a, a shorter password more susceptible to somebody compromising? I'm sure many users have got the impression sort of mentally that password cracking attacks against passwords are based on somebody sitting there trying combinations and you know, manually um, at the keyboard and, and trying to get in. And so the user's conception of it is going to be, well, no, they're not going to have any success with that because um, I've been told the account will lock out after three or five incorrect attempts. So they're not going to get that lucky. The, you know, the, the probability is with me that they won't get in rather than them that they will. And so in their mindset, six characters, eight characters, even the word password yeah, might be secure enough because they don't think somebody's going to get it within three guesses. And of course, we know that's not the way it works, but we know that because we're in this domain, whereas the, the many thousands, millions of people that we're expecting to make password choices don't know that. And the one thing that I guess isn't explicitly covered in this survey, because there's no way that you can model it, is the question of password reuse and the various password wallet organizations browser companies all say don't do this you know don't reuse their password even apple shows you now on its settings application that if you've reused a password in more than one place uh, that's still good advice but again it's not something that you could necessarily test because they wouldn't be able to know so that comes back to that question of education do you still feel yourself as a researcher in this field that actually that is one of the steps people can do to secure their digital identity online absolutely so avoiding having the you know the same password across multiple services obviously is reducing your exposure. I mean, it's the classic, all the eggs in one basket. If you've used the same password in multiple places, somebody's acquired it from one compromise, they've got the opportunity then to breach you in different locations. I mean, one thing I did in the earlier versions of this study that I didn't repeat for the 2022 version was looking at whether some of the sites prevented you from reusing an old password that you'd used on there sites in the past. And again, it was variable results as to whether you could reuse an old password. So just you know, people who are changing and then going back to things. But no, across the sites, it, um, um, no, there's no way to measure it in this context. But as you say, certain uh, things like um, Apple devices will give you notifications as to whether your your password that you've stored in your keychain, for example, is the same password that you've stored for other services as well. Stephen Fennell of Nottingham University and the IEEE on the need to promote good practice for passwords and how raising awareness of measures such as multi-factor authentication can improve security for everyone online. That, though, is all for this episode of Security Insights. We'll be back on October the 5th when we'll be looking at DDoS attacks and how they've increased in line with global tensions. We do hope you can join us then. Meanwhile, you can catch up on past programmes on our website, securityinsights.co.uk, and of course on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.